Kansas City to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Switch is on. Mother I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. The switch is on. Yes, that is that famous intro of ours. And that, and I don't get to say it often enough. That is, in fact, Alex Jones at the very top of the show saying, I've been dating Ian for, or Ian and I have been dating for a long time. <laughs> um, yeah, if you guys don't know, especially if you're a new listener, we did have Alex Jones on one of the first, very first episodes ever. And it was a blast, man. I, I I will always be unapologetic that I'm a fan of Alex. I think he's a fun interview. And I'd, I'd truly love to have him back on. And the only thing that stops me from reaching out at times is the craziness of the censorship going on. I just, I don't, like, I don't, it's not even what Alex is going to say. I feel like just having Alex on, they'll, like, revoke your YouTube or some crap like that. Or, um, you know, or, or take us off Apple Podcasts. I mean, some of that stuff has slowed down a little bit, especially with Alex being reinstated on X uh, or Twitter uh, with Elon Musk at the helm. But yeah, I I do always think about that stuff. You you let me know your comments at Ian Scotto on on X because uh, I, I think it'd be fun to have him back on. And that's really a um that's a Chris connection right there. But anyway, you guys see the title. Uh, I am personally gearing up for SHOT Show as you're hearing this, and we've done, I don't know how many consecutive uh, new episodes, so give us a break, because this is actually a really cool best of that I wanted to highlight with some of the really awesome pilots we've had on. Um, Before we get to all that, I have to say, man, the feedback on the last episode with Edsel Dope, Tony Campos, has been tremendous, uh, picked up by We Are The Pit, Blabbermouth, and a million other rock sites. It's it's always cool when we make news like that and get new listeners on board. So if you are a new listener, yeah, you, we usually highlight special operations veterans, um, contractors, uh, sometimes even first responders, police officers, and that type of thing. But I occasionally do like to have bands on or even actors on or, or people from other realms of life, athletes and that type of thing. But we've done a lot of bands because that's kind of my wheelhouse. That's what I'm into. And usually, more times than not, there is some type of military connection with them in, uh, you know, uh, fans listening to them who are veterans or even stories they have of friends who have served and that type of thing. So uh, anyway, uh, with that, uh, another thing I was going to address is some plans for the coming months. I've I've said this a few times on recent episodes that if you've been listening, uh, I I am no fan of Zoom, and that's how we have to do the majority of our episodes with Chris being in Kansas and myself being in New York. I love when we get to do an episode in studio like the recent one with Kirk Spradley. And we were for a while doing things on Squadcast, and then uh, our video with John Keyes completely 
didn't record, even though it looked perfectly fine. Uh, luckily, the audio captured, but after that, I was like, I don't care if this is high res, we can't lose material. So I deactivated that account because I was in touch with them. There was no backup. Um, I was actually talking to friend of the show and pilot, John Rain Waters, and some other people who use Riverside, and they've had great experience. So the plan is for early this year, we will hop over to Riverside, where episodes will record in high resolution and high quality audio. Um, and if someone's connection just is not great that day, then we'll hop over to Zoom as a backup. And I'd also like to do at least one or two episodes every month in studio because in studio is the best. It can't be replicated. Uh, I wish I could get Chris to come out here, but it's just not in the cards, it looks like. But so many people come into New York uh, the way the Kirk did. So, yeah, we're going to try to do more in studio at Gotham Podcast Studios uh, when we can. With that, this episode is really pilots that we've had on talking combat stories or in the case of Ashley Leppert, uh, mission stories, because she's not a combat veteran, but she did certainly uh, take part in a major mission with Hurricane Harvey uh, that got her uh, recognized at the White House, and uh, she became an Air Medal recipient for that. But yeah, some of, the, some of the episodes we've had on with pilots, we actually didn't get into any combat stories with them, like John Rain Waters. I listened back. I don't think we have many combat stories with him or... Uh, Kirk Spradley, we mainly focused on on other st- other combat, but not really pilot stories, which is what I wanted to get into for this episode. And and also, I sometimes forget, you know, some of the pilots that we've had on are not necessarily combat veterans. If they served in the '90s, um, many of them have not seen combat. So, yeah, these that's mainly what this episode is. So, uh, hitting it off right now for that, we got Ryan Fugit. Apache pilot and CIA officer. Uh, this is from episode 140. Ryan also uh, hosts his own podcast that you got to check out, Combat Story. Tonto's been featured on there. Uh, so, yeah, this is Ryan. I've been a pilot for about seven years, six years. And so I was a company commander responsible for 40 people. We had eight to 10 helicopters to patrol a pretty large area. Like the focus in 2008 when I was there was in Iraq with the surge. Um, So a lot of the assets went there. So we were trying to cover a really broad part of Afghanistan and support a lot of guys on the ground with not a whole lot of assets. So we were spread thin, which means we got a lot of, we got to see a lot of action as a result. Um, A few that come to mind, we were on, and, and actually I know, you know, we were chatting before, you know, Jack Murphy, obviously. Yeah. I worked with Jack for so many years. So, yeah. Great guy. As you know, like I've interviewed him and and Dave, love them and and their shared team house. And they've had me on as well. Um, Jack and I, when we were talking, I told him I was based at Salerno and Coast in Afghanistan. And he's like, Were you there when the base got attacked? And so I was. There were multiple times it was attacked, but one of the times was when I was there. And I just happened to be on our quick reaction that night. So, if anything happened in our whole AO, like, even three hours away, that was on us to run out, get in our aircraft and fly out and do something. And that night we were on a night cycle. So, you know, you wake up really late in the afternoon, might work out for a little bit and we go out and we pre-flight our aircraft. So we make sure everything's set. We do a handover from the previous team. If there's anything going on, nothing's happening. So we, because we're pilots, we like to eat. We go down to uh, the chow hall and we're sitting there and we get this call. Like we're, we're eating midnight chow, they called it. So it's like eggs and meat and 
stuff in our faces and then they call us, hey, the base is getting attacked. Uh, we need you guys to, to launch. And the chow hall was not near the airfield. So you got like these four, not in the greatest shape pilots trying to run out to the aircraft. There's stuff like going off outside the wire. You're starting to hear explosions and, and small arms fire. We don't know what's going on. All we heard over our radio was, hey, base is under attack, which is pretty rare. We were a fairly, we weren't a huge base, but we were big. So for somebody to come and, and hit us was not a frequent occurrence. So we were running out, we're heading out to the aircraft and we got our crew chiefs who are helping to launch us basically. And in an Apache, unlike Black Hawk or a Chinook, uh, the crew chiefs don't go with us. They're just hooking up. We're, we're talking to them on the radio as we're getting cranked and they're making sure everything looks good so we can take off. And as we're getting into the cockpit with our crew chiefs, we got small arms fire like coming in over the wire. You can start seeing uh, tracers, uh, some explosions going off. And we kind of, as pilots, tuck into our kind of nice little safe cockpit area. And our crew chiefs are out on the wing, like checking stuff for us and making sure we're ready to launch, like really exposed. So it was one of the few times that I got to sit there and like see them put their themselves out on the line for me. Cause usually we would take off and we fly an hour and we get in a fight and come back. And this time, like they were really, you know, it made a big difference to me. Like they, they put themselves out there for me that night. So we get in, we crank, we take off. And usually we're flying out for some time. And here, like we took off into just a very chaotic environment. So Bob Salerno, for anybody who's been downrange, they'll know like, oh, in Coast, there's this base Salerno. And then not too far away was this base Chapman, which unfortunately a year after I left, Chapman was hit with a really nasty suicide bomber that's featured in um, Zero Dark 30. It was a CIA NX base that got hit. And so you had a lot of the the OGA folks, other government agencies, special ops at that base. So when they heard we were getting hit, they're like, oh yeah, that's in our backyard. So they're rolling out of their base. The artillery battalion that was our perimeter defense is also like, okay, we're gonna go get in this. So we got all these friendlies converging outside at night and there isn't anything like drawn up, like we're doing a deliberate operation where we knew, all right, we're going at this house. Here's what the bad guys will look like. It was just really chaotic, all kinds of um, comms going off. So it's two Apaches. We take off and, and we literally were just looking straight down at our base, trying to orient on where the fight is. You can't really talk to anybody. The friendlies coming in from Chapman. We don't know their comms because we never work with them. They're all spooky special ops people. Um, so we see them coming. We can't really tell them from the other friendlies or enemy. So we're just trying to assess the situation. And within an Apache, it's, I mean, outside of the special ops community for aviation, it's the most technically advanced aircraft. So what we would do between the two aircraft to make sure we don't run into each other is we would drop this icon on our computer screens. So like my wingman would drop it on top of the area we're working on, on his, his dash and then text it over to me. So we had the same overlay. And it was basically a box that had, that was cut in half. And so we'd say, all right, you guys, you aircraft stay on that side of the box and the other aircraft will stay on the other so we don't run into each other. So we're doing that 
and we're kind of doing racetrack patterns separately, not like a trail wingman scenario. And we're just trying to orient on what's going on on the ground. And in this particular event, I was sitting in the backseat of the Apache. I would usually sit in the front as the commanding officer to run the battle. The guy in the back is typically the one who's flying and the guy in front is shooting and um, kind of making sure that what's going on on the ground makes sense and that we're helping how we need to be helping. So this time to get me some time in the back seat, we switched, which is not a good thing to do in combat. I was not as familiar with the back seat. So I'm trying to orient and not, not run into my wingman. And all of a sudden my front seater, who's the most experienced pilot in our unit, is like, all right, I gotta, got some enemy here. We're clear to take a shot, make sure I'm clear. So I say, okay, sounds good. I get into an attack pattern. We come in to shoot and I'm like, all right, you're clear because it's my responsibility to clear him. And then all of a sudden our wingman flies like right in front of us on the screen, not like 10 meters in front of us, but between us and the target. And so on the screen that my front seater is using to look at his, his target, he's yeah. basically got another Apache that flies in front. Wow. So to, to me, that was a, a huge like wake up moment of guy yeah, i cannot be behind this aircraft like i got to get ahead of the fight so what i did is I, I pulled up we aborted that shot we pulled up and started climbing to get back into a position and i was like i just need a couple couple seconds to my front seater and he was really experienced he's like all right no problem and then all right let's get back in this fight and so we did we got back in um we ended up not taking many shots that night because it was so chaotic on the ground, but we were able to push these guys back. The fight went out, like we flew for probably four or five hours that night. And then we handed over to a day crew of Kiowas to take over. Like this fight went on. They hit us with um, a pretty serious vehicle borne IED. Um, so took out a lot of the perimeter, some of the perimeter guards, the Afghans. Um, they did not actually breach our base, which is great. Uh, but it was it was intense. Like I just hadn't really been involved in something that was that, um, you know, so chaotic like that. Um, we, we got into some others later, but nothing like in my backyard like this. So it gave me a great appreciation for what these guys in these isolated fobs were going through when they got hit. And it was just a reminder, I got to be on my game at all times when I'm up here. Like, I can't just say we're clear if I haven't really looked hard enough to clear it. And then it was great because the, the guy in the front seat could have really wrecked me. I mean, I was a senior ranking officer, but he had been flying for 20 years and he, he got, he's like, Hey, just calm down. We'll get back in this. And we did. And he helped me. So great learning experience, but yeah. not the kind that um, I really wanted to be a part of like that, but we ended up helping the base that felt good. And I got to see my guys really, the, the crew chiefs got into it for, for one of the first times, which I thought was awesome. Well, when you said uh, earlier, when, when I asked you, you know, these experiences that change you as a person, how, how did that change you as a person saying that, that, that you were no longer the same person you were before deployment from that experience? Yeah. I mean, like that was truly near death. If we had hit our wingman. We, all of us would have been dead. I would have taken three other people's lives with me. Um, it wasn't the first time I had, I had, I guess, like thought about a near-death experience, but it was probably the first time I was that close to one, like really that close to it. 
And, and that would have been a catastrophe, not just for us who lost our lives, but like having to, the PR for the Taliban would have been great on that one. Like that's what they want to see aircraft yeah. go down, the whole dynamic of the battle changes. So I think it made me remember, Hey, I, I might be I feel young at 28, but this is the real deal here. And actually when I was in um, my first assignment in Germany, Years before that, 2005, 2006, we were on a training exercise and two, two pilots that I knew just flew straight into the ground on a training exercise. And like, these are people we knew from our unit. And so that was like the first time that it was real to me. You could really get killed doing this. These were experienced pilots on a training run at night and got fixated on a target and just flew straight into the ground and couldn't pull wow. up. And then you sit there in the aviation community, you listen to um, the tapes of the people, like the black box recorders of what happened in their last moments. And like you're listening to the last minute of their lives with all the other pilots to learn from it. But it's hard to divorce yourself from like the emotions of these guys and their families, their kids, their wives, super hard. So like, I, so I guess I say that that night when we got that base attack, it wasn't like the first time I had to confront like mentally the possibility we would die because it really started with that moment in Germany, but it kept building towards changing me and my mindset and not taking things for granted, um, writing back home a little more often, that sort of thing. Who, who was the first person you got to call to recall that near, near death experience to like your, your parents, uh, you know? Yeah, great question. So I was married and had a six month old son at the oh, time. Oh, wow. So that was wow. tough. All right, this next one is from Brian Slade, Apache pilot and author. Uh, if you want to check out that full episode, it's episode 187. Great number. Uh, this is Brian Slade. My very first engagement was I went, so when I went and deployed, I only had 300 hours uh, as a pilot. <laughs> so wow. I was low, low time guy, but I was next on the chopping block to be an aircraft commander, and we were short aircraft commanders. So, needs of the Army. Surprise, you're going to be a low time aircraft commander. So they were upgrading me while I was downrange. But my first engagement with the Taliban was actually as a co pilot in the front seat. And I had a very experienced guy in the back seat. And I'm very grateful for it. And you'll find out why in a minute. Um, so as we roll around the corner, there's this cliff, and it's probably a 300 foot cliff on each side. And there's a big, I would call it a canyon. It's a valley, but it was basically a canyon um, in between these two. And and there was a convoy that had taken an IED and they were basically being ambushed, um, nowhere to go off of that road. And we rolled in and like, we're taking fire from multiple possession, multiple poos, multiple uh, points of origin that, you know, we don't know exactly where we're just taking it. And I'm like, this is the first time I roll into a, an engagement and the, and the Taliban continued to shoot. Usually we roll in with the Apaches and they're like, oh, not today, you know, you know. But this time they're like still shooting. And I'm like, okay, good. We're going to be able to develop this situation. We'll be able to figure out. And now I realize it's really hard. It's really hard to figure out where these dudes are at. Like super hard based off. Was, of was it day? I you made it said day or night. It was daytime. So daytime. we couldn't puzzle you flashes. We could, I mean, you, you can in the day. It's just a lot harder, right? And I didn't, and I'd never seen them. So I didn't know what I was looking for. And so we're looking and we're trying to find it. We're trying to talk to the ground guys and say, can you give, you give us a, a you know, a, a closer bearing on where we where should be looking. And finally, my, my co-pilot, I mean, my, my co-pilot, my aircraft commander 
Um, he gets real aggressive. I mean, he comes down to 10, 20 feet right over where we think these guys are at. And he's slowing us down. We're pretty juicy target at this point. And he's just like daring them to do something. And so you're, he's trying to draw fire so you can establish a position. It's really what, and no, that's, that's awesome. You guys, I've seen you guys do that. It's, it's fucking awesome. I just, I want people out there to know that's what you're trying to do, which is that's brave as shit, dude. That's, 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 that is amazing. And I'm, I'm ignorant and I don't know what he's, I'm like, okay, you know, he knows I'm just up here looking at the <laughs> tactical acquisition display and all that kind of stuff, trying to find stuff. And, you know, in my head, I'm like, we are moving pretty slow. I could hit us. <laughs> like, you know, and just as we were, we kind of were sliding and we slid off of the, of the ledge to where we were over the canyon. So we went from like 20 feet to like 300 feet, right? As far as our altitude. And right then we just get rocked. Like, boom. Like, I mean, the whole thing, the innards, everything, you know, and the helicopter gets launched forward and we are falling and I'm down in that canyon and I can see the rock we're going to crash on. I could see it like, and it's so weird how your brain works. I'm like, okay, we're going to crash there. I'm already, you know, tightening down my, tightening down my thing. I'm like, and once we hit, I got to grab my radio and my gun. I got to, you know, it's all going through your head. I got to pull Doug out of the back seat. Well, the realistic is I'm going to be smashed in the front seat and nobody's getting me out. That's the realistic thing, but you're, you're, you're an optimist when you're about to die. So, um, then all of a sudden we fly out of it. We like he pulls out and we start flying. And I'm like, it, what the heck? No, I know. And what happened is RPG blew up underneath us. It it caused real bad air. The helicopter couldn't fly in that air. It was turbulent and vortices. So we fell through that air. Doug, being the champion he was, saw that the engines and everything was still working, continued to fly instead of freak out and die, and flew, flew us out of the thing. Right. Wow. So so grateful he was there because. I don't know what I would have done as a 300 hour guy. I probably thought we were done. I probably would have entered an auto rotation. You know, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what I would have done, but then we roll back in and I actually start to, to see muzzle flashes. I actually start to be like, Oh, that's what that is. It's just real quick, just a little, a little flicker. And I realize what I'm seeing more out of my peripheral vision than focused on even. And so I talked to the ground guys. I'm like, Hey, verify. There's nobody at this. Nope. We don't have any friendlies over there. So then Doug's like, shoot it. So I start shooting with the 30 in the middle. And, we, and it's the first time I pull the trigger where when I squeeze the trigger, there's death on the other end. Right? Somebody's dead. Yeah, you're, you're killing people. I, I know it's hard. I know it, you can say that on this show. If you can't say, I get it. But that's you, yes, what you're doing. I'll, you're, yeah. you're killing people. Yeah, it's, it's, just it's, it. it's, just, it's just a different feeling. It's a different feeling. And it, I'm not, I'm not going to. I don't know if that impacted me right then. I don't think it did. At that moment, I was just shooting and I was shooting. It was impactful later but not right then and and and, and muzzle flash once i started shooting muzzle flashes they started coming everywhere like they're like it was like they were like oh no you know where we're at so they all started shooting right boom 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 boom, boom, boom. so we kept shooting and that kind of died down a little bit and we're still looking around they're still taking some pot shots over at the at the convoy so we're still flying around and and what's that that saying where you know the definition of insanity is when you do the exact same thing yeah yeah, yeah albert einstein we yep. were in the exact same spot doing the exact same thing and we got rocked again right this time's pieces of i didn't know if it was pieces of us or rock was hitting the canopy we we're falling this time we flew, we we went like it it didn't it wasn't just forward and down it was like this angle bank down but i had 10 minute old wisdom right so i rolled in and looked in and i was like all right we got engines let's fly out of this thing right and so we, he he did he flew out and then we're like, I'm like, Doug, that guy's on the other side of the valley. 
There's no way he's hitting us right there every time from this side. There's a dude on the other side, you know, and luckily the ground guys figured that same thing out. It was quiet enough. They kind of honed in on where they shot. They saw the RPG mustache, is what I call it, you know, in that little cloud. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. And they they pointed us in the direction, and then we obliterated that spot. And, you know, and then, you know, we finished up, and they they ended up free and getting freedom of maneuver again. And, and we left and broke station. And when I got out of the helicopter that time, that's when it hit. When I put my feet on the ground, and I was like, holy crap this is real. Like those targets shoot back with the intent <laughs> to take us down. Right. That's what they're doing. Right. And I, I don't know how many of those Abadabas I sent to their place today. Right. I don't know how many, but it's a lot, you know, and I think I say in the book, I was like, maybe, maybe by, 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 by answering with the freaking Thor like punch that the guys that made it can go home and talk to their families about maybe we should just make love, right? <laughs> Instead of like, you know, maybe we should just do other things like raise goats. And maybe we should just, maybe we should stop this because it's such a one-sided battle at some time, at some point. I mean, even though it is a one-sided, they did almost take us out of the air twice. Yeah. They did, yeah. We had technological advantage beyond, I mean, a huge technological advantage. They still almost took us out twice. So it was just this huge, impactful moment of okay, this is real, and and now we got it. Now we got to move forward with that new understanding that take this shit serious because they do, they live oh, yeah. it, and they've lived yeah. it for decades. I mean, centuries. And you know, like they, <laughs> this is it. They don't get mid tours. This is what they do, right? They yeah. are com they are committed to their cause, whether that cause makes sense or not, and they're willing to do anything to take us out for that cause and they and they do have the experience like you said you learn that experience in flight school where you had that now i learned something from well shit they're shit ten thousand years they've been learning from experience and that's why they I, they're good they're good i always said that. i tell people yeah you like the taliban you're like no i don't like them but they're i respect all of them they're fucking good they're good at I what they that's, they that's what they do they, their experience they live that that's their job so that's one of the, so I wrote the book because I did this and I had a lot of these other experiences. And at the end of the day, I feel like I was stronger for it. But I looked at a lot of guys that did, they say I had the same experiences and it actually crippled them, right? Yeah, some yeah, it's true. Of them even, some of them even took their own lives. I mean, so, yeah. so I was like, why? Why is that? <laughs> and one of the principles that we dug down, we did seven principles of, of things that I was doing that probably helped me experience post-traumatic stress growth rather than damage. And, and one of them was exactly what you just said. I never hated the enemy. I never hated the enemy. Hate what they do. Hate their cause. I didn't hate those men. Yeah. Those men were freaking bad ass. Yeah. I mean, they're running they're in sandals and freaking shower shoes. They used to put them down plastic shower shoes in the winter time. It's nuts. They're fighting in literally in Crocs, open toe Crocs. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and they're, and they're 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 hanging. I mean, the ratio of us killing them to, to uh, them killing us is is staggering. But but they're still there. They're still doing it. All right, that was Brian Slade, Apache pilot and author from episode 187. Uh, before we go any further, this episode is sponsored by our great friends at Bubs Naturals. Uh, promo code BATTLELINE for 20% off at BubsNaturals.com. Man, they have... 
the best collagen protein out there, apple cider vinegar gummies with the mother, which is great for digestive health, uh, gut health, MCT oil powder, which is a great energy boosting product and also great for the essential fats that you should be getting in your diet. And I can't forget also, along with the hydration packets and all that, uh, hydrate or die, Bub's Brew. They have the best coffee out there. Bub's Brew, check it out. Just all great supplements from a great company that gives back to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. None other than Bub's Naturals. Once again, visit bubsnaturals.com. Use the promo code BATTLELINE for 20% off. This show is also sponsored by our good friends at Fort Scott Munitions. Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition that is designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states, but you'll get the best deal through us when you go to fsm.com and you use the promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off your order. Only available to listeners of the BATTLELINE podcast. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, BATTLELINE Tactical, and the BATTLELINE podcast. FSM.com, promo code BATTLELINE. All right, next one here is from the most recent uh, of these episodes. Amber Smith, Army Kiowa pilot, uh, from episode 216, and we're going to have Amber back on very soon uh, for her new book coming out, which we're looking forward to. So check it out, Amber Smith from episode 216. I made pilot in command in Iraq um, towards the second half of the deployment. Um, pilot in command means you're in charge of the aircraft, it's like you're the commander of the aircraft. Before that, you're, you're a PI, which is a pilot, and... In Afghanistan, I had much more responsibility. I become an air mission commander, which is the commander of an, uh, a team. So usually two aircrafts is how we flew in combat. You're the lead in a trail. Yeah. So um, yeah, Afghanistan was just like a much different war for me. Uh, it was a lot of like mountain flying, um, very close proximity to uh, the enemy just based on how we flew like so close in the mountains. Um, I'll say one thing that, uh, stuck out for me was, uh, this was fairly new to arriving in country. We had just gotten in Jalalabad and this was, we did right seat, left seat, right seat rides in the Korangal. You've probably heard of the Korangal up mm -hmm. the Pash river Valley. Yeah. And, um, so there was a tick, a troops in contact, and we had just done our like entire mission block. So it was daytime transitioning into nighttime. We are in the FARP unloading our rockets, unloading um, our 50 cal and, you know, getting gas. And we get this call for troops in contact and we like kind of like talk to each other and we're like, and this was up the patch. So it was probably like a good 15 to 20 minute flight. 
And we hadn't really done much since we had gotten there. Like I said, this was very early on. And we uh, were like, another team was about to come on um, call and we're like, nope, we're already in the, in the flight. We got uh, this. And so we sort, we like told the FARP guys, we're like, load us back up. They like load us, us up and you do this, you know, they're like, let's go like now. Um, and you know, we, we picked up and we max collective max torque and it was dark by then. So, um, we were sort of like tired. You get tired from flying a helicopter for so many hours, like the adrenaline kicks in and I had a brand new left seater, which I feel for, because I've been in that position as like a brand new pilot and right in combat. And you have like the other pilot being like, flying the helicopter, but also like putting in like the, um, nav grid and telling them to write everything down that we're getting, like they're firing artillery right now. And, um, you know, get, get the hold line, make sure we know where it is on the map, like where we're not supposed to fly in. And then you hear a medevac coming in and then you hear the ground guys who are like kind of frantic because they have a bunch of wounded and KIA and, um, they're calling in like Apaches that are in a different area of the airspace. And so there's so many moving parts and pieces. Um, and so anyway, this was what was happening. We were flying up uh, to Asadabad, which is up the Konar River Valley. And then you take a left into the Pesh River Valley. And it's like, it's like almost like a canyon is how you would describe it. Cause the mountains are so high and it's so st- um, steep that you're flying through this canyons and the mountains are above you almost. And which puts you in not like kind of a vulnerable position yeah. for an aircraft. Um, so the artillery starts firing and we're holding and it's just, I don't know how to describe it other than mad chaos. Like we are listening to four radios going off, talking at the exact same time. And you're kind of responsible for listening to certain ones. And then you have medevacs coming in and, and, uh, finally you get cleared into um the fight and you're getting a grid from a ground guy and they're shining ir lasers on the target and we come in and we like just like set up our pattern and we just like lob rockets lob rockets um into the side of the mountain which was the it was the opening to the korangal river valley um they actually closed the korangal to um aircraft soon after we got there because on a right seat left seat ride they were actually firing rpgs at the aircraft it wasn't a flight that i was on but they were just like okay we don't want you know an aircraft going down like right when we get here um and so yeah ended up it it was um it's a story that's in my book there was um i do believe it was like three or four enemy kia um a medevac came in picked up some of the wounded U.S. forces, um, and then another Kiowa ke- uh, team came on station. We were like so low on fuel. Like our um, when you get low on fuel, it you get this bong that goes off in the helicopter, and it's just like bong, 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 bong. But we uh, we made sure that you know we were able to make it back and get fuel, um, but. Did you end up going when you got there? Did you end up refueling and heading back, or did do you just expend? And with a Kiowa, 
do you just expend all your rounds and then get out of there? Just like when we used to call little birds on station, they would just, they would dump everything and then they kind of, we'd have another group come in and fly in. Is the Kiowa the same thing where just because of their size, and, you know, Apache can kind of hang on station a little bit. The Cobras can just, they, I, and maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. They carry more armaments. They're, they're no, little you're right. aircraft. We are limited on, um, we usually carried about 300 rounds of 50 cal. This is just standard. If we knew we were going to go do something different, then we would change our weapons load. Okay. But um, usually about 350 rounds of 50 cal, which doesn't go, you don't lose it as fast as you do with like a minigun. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And then we also would carry like four rockets usually. Um, four to six rockets, but we also like loaded up because we knew we were going in, which you then have to sacrifice fuel for. So sure. if you take more ammo, you got to cut down on the fuel that you take on, which then um, changes your on station time. So um, one of the many struggles that the army was faced with when trying to to figure out what to do after the Kiowa um because the aircraft needed to be replaced, but it was just, it was just such a specific and effective mission for um, a war like Iraq and Afghanistan that, um, yeah, it was, it, the Kiowa did its job very, very well in those two theaters yeah. of operation. But to answer your question, we um, were relieved. We were also limited. Um, we had been flying for a while and yeah. So when we were in the FARC, when we got the troops in contact call, we, um, you know, took off and went, but yeah. we knew we'd have to switch out because of fuel and um, ammo. That was Amber Smith from episode 216, another recent one here. This is Jack Stewart, FA-18 pilot and author. Uh, we're going to have Jack also on very soon uh, because he has yet another book coming out in his series that we're looking forward to. But another combat story from pilot Jack Stewart. I, I did I did join uh, in peacetime and it was, um, you know, it was after Desert Storm. Um, which I was in junior high, I think, when Desert Storm happened. So we were in, you know, we were in the Middle East, but it was all, you know, Southern Watch and it was all the peacetime operations. So that's what I kind of expected I was going into. Um, I went through the Naval Academy, graduated in 1999, started flight training, uh, ended up, you know, training in the Hornet. And on my first day, uh, my first F-18 simulator was 9-11. And I remember walking into the simulator building, having heard on the radio about this plane crashing into the World Trade Center, thinking, man, weather must be terrible up there. You know, I still have a hard time believing a plane would crash into the building. And I walked into the sim building and I saw the second plane hit. And um, I, I knew at that moment that we were going to war and, you know, we were at war for the rest of my career. And um, uh, so it, it definitely put things into perspective, you know, because uh, you've trained your entire career up until that point for this moment. And so I knew every training mission I did from that moment on had meaning, you know, when I trained in close air support, I knew that I was going to one day be flying over Afghanistan. Uh, I didn't know it was going to be Iraq, but I knew I was going to be doing something to support the guys on the ground that were, um, that were, that were kind of, you know, hitting back against the enemy. I knew that was going to happen. So it definitely put things in perspective for me. Um, and, and as far as like my combat deployments go, 
um, you know, I'm sure everyone kind of feels the same. The first one is definitely like eye-opening experience, you know, and then and then it becomes more routine. Um, I hate to say it, but it, but it does. Um, and, and then I got the unique experience too of having combat, you know, from thirty thousand feet, and then getting to see it on the ground, and that was also another eye-opening experience for me. Uh, made me really want to go back to the boat and kind of live you know on an aircraft carrier again instead of a tent but um yeah it was just a a really really unique experience but i'm one i'm super proud that i was able to do yeah um i know a lot of people can't say that so i you know i'm very proud do you have any any good combat related stories that you're comfortable telling because i'm sure you i mean with all the deployments (laughs) you have there's got to be some awesome stuff you've seen you know and and they they vary from like the terrifying to the funny to you know uh, but for, for me, the one story that always sticks out in my mind is, is my very first combat mission, uh, flying into Iraq. So after training in the F-18, I joined VF-87, um, and I was the first new guy that they had had since, um, since 9-11. And, and so they were deployed on 9-11 on the Enterprise, and they were actually on their way home, and uh, the boat turned around. So they were the first guys to drop bombs in Afghanistan. Um, so I was the first new guy to join the squadron. So these are all very seasoned combat experience, you know, guys that I'm flying with. And now uh, we go on deployment on the Roosevelt. And um, this is during the shock and awe part of Iraqi freedom. So we're just starting. And uh, we were in the Mediterranean and we were flying through Turkey to get into Iraq from the, from the north. So we were supporting all special operations forces, um, you know, other governmental agencies that were on the ground doing stuff. We were the only support they had. So we were doing closer support for them. And I remember flying into Iraq on my first mission and looking down and seeing AAA, like anti-aircraft artillery, shooting up at us. And so my first initial thought is, holy crap, they're shooting at me. And that's like a scary thing because they can actually hit me and then I can crash and, you know, die and all the bad stuff, right? Uh, but it was immediately replaced with anger. Like, how dare you shoot at me? You know, um, and I just remember that that switch that was just flipped from being the switches on. You say <laughs> the switches on, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you go from being scared to just falling back on your training and doing everything that they've taught you from day one, and uh, and and from that moment on, I was I wouldn't say I was like completely at peace, but I was definitely more comfortable. I felt confident that I could do the job. All right, and one last one uh, for this episode, guys. We'll be back next week with full video and all that jazz uh, from SHOT Show, actually. Uh, I should mention, yeah, we'll be recording in at SHOT Show, uh, and I'm looking forward to that with Phil Otto, with uh, Sean Kirk, and Dale Sizemore, and uh, I'll give you the full re- recap and uh, all that of uh, SHOT Show uh, following that, actually, the, in the following episode. But you'll get a little uh, peek behind the curtain for all of you who won't be there in Vegas. But uh, yeah, ending this episode is friend of the show, Ashley Albright, which I should mention, Ashley Leppert uh, is the name when you buy her book prior to her marriage. So uh, check it out, Air Metal Recipient. She talks about rescuing people during Hurricane Harvey, rescuing babies, and being honored at the White House. This is from episode 196, Ashley Albright. And we'll be back once again next week on Tuesday for another new episode of Battleline Podcast. Thanks. Well, so, okay, let me take you back to August, I believe it was 27th, 2017. Um, 
this is kind of a cool story precursor to the actual mission of, of with the babies. But one of my rescue swimmers um, that I happen to have been stationed in Detroit with, um, he had been stationed in Corpus Christi at the time of Hurricane Harvey. And this was the second day. So everybody was kind of swarming in from all units, just sending, you know, all hands on deck kind of mission. And my rescue swimmer on this second day of mission happened to be a rescue swimmer, Troy Ramsdell, that I had trained up in Detroit. So it was super cool to be like, we pounded fists real quick. And I was like, bro, you're my rescue swimmer. And he's like, ah, oh, you're my flight mechanic. So it was a really cool moment um, doing a quick pre-flight on the helicopter and kind of prepping for like, man, it's shit's about to go down kind of thing. Um, so anyways, we, we get a call and I still to this day don't know exactly where the location was, but it was either a children's recovery facility or it was something where there was just a mass amount of children with different, um, you know, issues that needed to be out. So we fly to this area. So, I mean, and it's just crazy because we're in the smallest helicopter the Coast Guard has. It is a short range recovery MH-65 Dolphins, so like you blow on it and it's like, woo, you know, like it does not handle turbulence and wind well, but the pilots are super amazing at what they do and they kept a steady, a, a steady course. But so we get this call to go out. We're on this mission. We got the coordinates. They're like, all right, be prepared. A lot of people out there. Um, but backtracking, I did not know this. We did not know this at the time that there was a bunch of children there. They just said, hey, here's the coordinates. Roll out. People are in trouble. So we get there and um, I con the, the pilots into position, which means that I'm, I'm literally at this point hanging out of the helicopter. I'm, you know, keeping the pilots in position. I'm lowering my rescue swimmer down on the hook. And I mean, there's a huge tree behind us. There's power lines in front of us. So I, I mean, my head's on a swivel, constantly keeping the pilots in check and making sure we don't hit anything. And I lower the swimmer down. He's in the water and I see, you know, slowly we're getting people in. We fill the cabin up, we drop them off at the convention center, but the second sortie out, I lower my swimmer down and I notice that he puts a woman into the basket and I see just bundles of what I thought at the time to be like clothes. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, Troy, bro, like stop putting this lady's clothes in the basket. Like we need to save room for humans, man. Like, what are you doing? But as you know, you just trust your team. I'm like, he knows what he's doing down there. I'm just going to trust him. So this is the last hoist. There's a woman in what I think to be five bundles of clothing. And I'm hoisting her up. I slide her into the cabin with the basket. I disconnect, lower it down just enough time to get my rescue swimmer before it's like bingo and we got to go. We're out of fuel. So as I finally get him in the, in the cabin, and, and mind you, there's five to six other people and their babies already in there. So we're crammed tight. And I have my rescue swimmer and I'm holding on to him and we're heading over to the landing zone. And I happen to look back and she's undoing the, the mother in the basket is undoing these bundles. And I see these little baby eyes staring up at me and I'm like, holy crap. And then she undoes the second bundle and there's another baby and then another and another. And soon there's four little sets of baby eyes staring up at me. And I'm just like, I get chills thinking about it now because, you know, it's such a profound moment recognizing like what you're doing because you're so numb to it. You're compartmentalizing the mission and the emotional aspect of it. But then in that moment, I'm seeing these four little babies looking up at me and I'm like, wow, like 
we're out here doing the Lord's work, man. Like we're like saving these people from potentially dying. Like it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it, it was a moment that I will never forget looking into those babies' eyes and just remembering like the mission and, and the danger of what was what was happening around us. Yeah. How were you able to hold it together? I just, uh, me, I just would look away. I, I, and not because I was, it's because I don't, hey, no, no, no. <laughs> Don't cry. Don't get, look away now. I'm not because I got to stay in the. You got to stay focused, and and you can. There's time for crying. I always thought this. There's there'll be time for crying. There'll be time for high fives. Down when I'm done. All right, but right now, but there are some where you see something like, oh my, that's getting to me. All right, walk away. And some people see that as insensitivity. I just that was just the way for me to maintain my composure. Is that what you did? Just looked away and found found a job to do, <laughs> something to do to keep your mind off it, or or did you break down? That's exactly what I did. As I looked away, there was actually um, I want to say a little boy about seven years old or so, and I gave him my flight mechanic seat, and he was sitting there by himself, and I'll never forget his little legs were just trembling because he was so cold, and so I took my attention off the babies and all that that was happening, and the feeding tube with the baby in the back, and I just. I got the survival blanket out and I wrapped it on his legs and I was like, I gave you the best seat in the house. You know, in that <laughs> moment, it was just like a way for me to like make this little boy's day because he had just left a horrific situation and now he's flying in a helicopter and I tried to make light of the situation and um, I just couldn't look at those little babies, especially since like we thought one was not alive at first and that's that's a whole nother story but i let my I, I gave my rescue swimmer that kind of task to handle and i put my focus on trying to make this little boy's helicopter ride the best ride of his life that's and so you, cool you I, I was gonna that was I, 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 the, the joking i i tell people this laughter movies and the bravado that's why i do love our movie they got the jokes that actually happening under duress all that jack ashry all the comments all the all the sayings from bad movies where there's team america or tropic thunder those things happen and you're like hey i got the best seat in the house laughter is what gets you through that stressful moments and that's that's where a lot of movies that get out there the bravado's there but they miss all that funny jack ashry that goes on. and you just proved it again like what did you do under all that stress i made a fucking joke exactly. that's exactly what ha happened so i'm sorry you know i didn't mean to cut you off but no no but and that's cool i mean because you've said this before on the show and and i do think yeah it's reflected when we have stories like this um you know, what I was going to say is you said earlier in the interview and, and you say it in the book, too. I mean, you don't do it for the accolades or the awards. That's that's not why you do this. But I have to wonder, what was it like when you got the call? We're going to have you as the guest at the State of the Union address. You're going to be sitting next to the first lady, Melania Trump. I mean, what was the phone call like? I mean, was it a shock to you? And what, what was it like, you know, being in because I've been in the room. I mean, it's like a small room. It's not as big as it looks on TV. And being the center of attention for this like monumental event. Um, I don't even know where to begin because it was wild. Like, I still feel like it was a dream. And um, on the hangar deck, we joke all the time. Like that's a part of, like you said, is, is decompression and being able to lighten um, the mood because we do some heavy missions and some heavy stuff. But um, when I got the call, I had my phone on silent and I was doing heavy maintenance on the, and the aircraft. And I had my phone on silent, but it was on vibrate and it kept vibrating. So I would look at it and it would be like a blocked call. So I would send it to voicemail and be like, man, who's calling me? They know it's a work day. And then I would put the phone back in my pocket. And then again, they would call block number. I'm like, Psh. 
So like after the third or fourth time, I don't remember, I finally answered and I was like, hello. Like I was so rude because I thought it was like a telemarketer and it was like this sweet lady. And she was like, hey, this is so-and-so uh, calling from the White House on behalf of President Trump and the first lady. And I was like, I instantly looked around the hangar deck. I'm like, who's playing a joke on me in here? You know, like that never happens. Um, but like, it was legit, bro. And I was like, cool. So I obviously got the invitation, had no clue, like zero idea, like the extent of what it was. I thought like, oh, cool. I'll sit in the back row peanut gallery. Like maybe I'll get a picture with like a Senator or something cool, but like sitting in that front row, that's when I realized I was like, I looked over to, um, Karen Pence, the vice president, uh, the second lady at the time. And I was like, I'm getting a little nervous. Like, is he going to talk about me in his speech? Like, I'm, what do I do? And thank God I asked that question because she's like, the proper protocol is that you stay seated for the standing ovation. Like everybody's supposed to stand and clap at you. Like, thank God, because I would have just stood up and been like, oh, like, what do I do? <laughs> So like, and, and I didn't realize that I was going to be spoken about, let alone in the first five minutes. And on top of that, have two standing ovations. Ashley was aboard one of the first helicopters on the scene in Houston during the Hurricane Harvey. Through 18 hours of wind and rain, Ashley braved live power lines and deep water to help save more than 40 lives. Ashley, we all thank you. Thank you very much. mind-blowing and the entire time I just kept saying to myself like thank you God because I knew that I was going to utilize that blessing as a platform to share my story and, and pique the interest of people so I could talk about my faith and my, my journey. That's all for this episode of Battleline Podcast but we're always posting new content on social media. Follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. That's an order. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes up every Tuesday. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Believe in yourself. Face all challenges head on. And as always, Never quit.